This episode of New Politics was released on the 8th of December, 2021, and produced on the land of the Wangal people. Welcome to the New Politics Podcast. In this episode, political stunts and rebooting the political career of Gladys Berejiklian, and we speak to Zoe Daniel to find out what's happening in the Voices of Goldstein campaign. I'm Eddie Djokovic, editor of New Politics. I'm David Lewis. I'm just sitting here. Thank you to all of our new Patreon subscribers and thank you for your continuing support. And if you would like to support our little venture, the details are available at our website, newpolitics.com.au, and it's a very good way to support independent journalism. We might be coming up to the end of the year and Christmas holidays, but that doesn't mean that the work of politics comes to an end. And the way that political parties end one year always sets them up for the next year, and especially when there's an election coming up. Labor is trying to end the year with a flourish. They followed up their climate reduction plans from Friday with an announcement to boost university places by 20,000 and provide 465,000 free TAFE places in nominated areas of skill shortages all across Australia. Meanwhile, Scott Morrison decided to go up to Bathurst and ride around Mount Panorama in the passenger seat of a racing car. We can see how this is going to play out next year. Labor will try and release policy and programs that offer solutions to the public and advocate a change of government based on these ideas. The Prime Minister will create these little media stumps, trying to attack and knock down these ideas presented by Labor and promise no change at all. Politics is usually all about the smoke and mirrors effect, but is there a limit to how much the public will tolerate? I don't know that we've reached that limit yet. We may well have, and Australians are supposed to be good at smelling bovine faecal matter. They didn't last time when it was clear that what we were being shoveled, and it was shoveled in big quantities, was nonsense and lies and promises that there were no intention of being kept. And when you point this out, you get a whole lot of whataboutism. Well, Labor did this and Labor did that. And often, to be fair, Labor hadn't done that. Um, Labor had been faced with a hostile Senate or a, or a minority government and some of their policies couldn't go through, which isn't to say that Labor is a perfect organisation. But Morrison, I think, has a lot against him this time. And I think the first thing is that a lot of people are starting to realise that he's not really cut out for the job. Now, whether that will be enough people, whether there will be enough people who engage, and you don't have to engage much to see how unsuitable he is and the party is. A lot of the issues aren't arcane details of political philosophy or or policy that you really need to know the workings of what you're talking about to understand why it's not good. A lot of it is pure lies. How, how do I put this? Not quite pretentious, but uh, false appeals to the working class, false appeals to that demographic that he thinks brought him in last time. The tradie, the aspirational tradie, that is those who aren't trades themselves but work with trades or want to be trades. The 
old working class belt of Western Sydney, of Western Melbourne, Eastern Perth, etc. Queensland in the uh, outside of the CBD of Brisbane. Being booed at Bathurst, I'm not sure is the death knell that others are saying. Politicians tend not to be popular at Bathurst and it does strike me as odd that he'd try it because if he was known as a car fanatic, you'd think, okay, yep, fair enough. He's gone to watch the cars, he enjoys the car races, but he's not. It's not like John Howard going to the cricket, which he clearly loved. It's not like Bob Hawke going to the football, which he clearly loved. It was clearly a stunt, and I think the Bathurst crowd knew that. Well, this has got a similar feel to the build-up to the 2019 federal election, where six months out from the election, Labor was releasing policy ideas and solutions. Morrison was engaged in marketing stunts that have got absolutely nothing to do with the business of government, and Labor was way ahead in the polls. Now, the difference this time is that no one is suggesting that Labor is going to win the election. Bill Shorten is no longer there as the leader of the Labor Party, and Scott Morrison is very well known to the electorate, whereas in 2019, he was totally unknown. So that marketing stunt on the weekend that you refer to, where he rode in the passenger seat of a racing car around Mount Panorama and then launched into talking points about putting Australians back into the driver's seat, that was absolutely predictable. And like many of Morrison's tactics, they're directly lifted from a marketing strategy handbook. And they've actually lost the How to Govern handbook many years ago, and this is all that they've got to offer. Now, there is a wide range of people who get into car motor racing, but essentially the crowd at the Bathurst racetrack on the weekend, that's the key audience for Morrison, and that's Liberal voting men who might consider voting for the Labor Party. And it's been suggested that if he loses this audience, he's gone completely. And as you mentioned, he was booed at Mount Panorama on the weekend. So he might have lost that audience and they're unlikely to be coming back anytime soon. I'm not saying he won't turn it around, but it's going to be a very hard job to turn it around. That crowd doesn't like what they perceive as, as BS. It reeked a little bit of New South Wales Premier Bob Carr going to the football to try and appeal to the football-going crowd. And, of course, Carr hated football and didn't know how it went, was clearly bored the whole time. And in the case, if you've got the opportunity to, say, take a lap, I would have thought a, a, a better marketer would have made play of giving it to a some kind of disadvantaged kid who was a huge car fan and to get a ride with, was it Craig Lowndes or whoever it was? The kid would have loved it. Everyone would have said, hey, that's a really nice thing to do. And it would have played better and it might have quelled some of the booing because who's going to boo a disadvantaged kid getting in and fulfilling a dream? But again, I don't think he's very good at marketing. And there was also the final news poll for this year and that shows that there's no change at all in the two-party preferred vote. Labor is at 53% and the LNP is at 47%. But there was one change, albeit a tiny change, and Scott Morrison is now more unpopular than Anthony Albanese. His net approval rating has just fallen right away. Politics in Australia is a two-way contest, and we've talked about this before, but it doesn't matter how bad your leadership is, 
if your opponent is considered to be worse by the electorate, well, you still end up winning. And that's exactly what happened uh, with Bill Shorten in the 2019 federal election. Shorten was considered to be far more unpopular than Scott Morrison, and he lost that election. Now, I know that it's a lot more complicated than this, but this advantage that Morrison did have over Albanese as far as having the better net approval rating, well, that's all gone now. That's all been neutralised. Yeah, you can't present yourself as an unknown quantity after three years. So much has gone wrong. How much the electorate as a whole will remember, and I'm betting he's hoping that they've got total amnesia. He keeps saying, oh, we've got to move past this issue, the issue of bushfires, the issue of slow and incompetent vaccine rollout, the issue of slow and incompetent pandemic management, the issue of continual corruption, the issue of a national party running amok, telling people it's not part of the government while sitting in cabinet seats, the issue of continual corruption of ministers, the ministers who stayed in their seat despite under any standard of Westminster protocol up to 2013 would have seen them not only step down, step out of parliament and for, and by-elections forced. This type of stuff builds up and builds up and builds up. And there comes a point where even the most forgetful people start to remember. And we may, have, we may be reaching that point. And the other big issue for this week has been the push by the Liberal Party and by Scott Morrison to have the former Premier of New South Wales, Gladys Berejiklian, to run in the seat of Warringah at the next federal election. Now, it's hard to know whether the Liberal Party is actually serious about this or whether it's a distraction from all of the other issues. And I'm in two minds about this because usually distractions, they use issues such as the culture wars or issues such as the religious discrimination bill to get everyone worried about all these other issues that have got nothing to do with anything. But this issue of focusing on Gladys Berejiklian, it just seems to be magnifying one of the big issues that is a total negative for the Liberal Party, and that's corruption. So politically, I can't see this as a distraction. But also, if they are serious about running Berejiklian in the seat of Warringah, and she'd be up against the independent MP, Zali Stegall, corruption would be the topic of every single conversation throughout the entire campaign, not just in Warringah, but possibly in other parts of New South Wales and possibly in the rest of the country as well. So it would totally swamp the campaign at the next federal election. So it's actually really hard to see what they're thinking about at the moment. It could be one of Morrison's little thought bubbles he sends up to see what the response is. There is a group of Liberal members in Parliament who think that Gladys is innocent and was hard done by by an uh, incompetent and biased institution. And anyone who watched it saw that they had the evidence and that the evidence was slowly laid out, carefully laid out, forensically explained. It was clear that whatever the findings are, she's not going to be exonerated. There's been a few theories floating around. One is is that they realise they're going to lose Warringah, so they're distracting everyone in the country by saying Gladys is going to run or everyone in the state while they sneak around and focus on possibly winnable seats in New South Wales. So they put Gladys in so people get focused on that with no intention 
the other interesting thing is that Gladys Berejiklian herself has said nothing. She hasn't said, yes, I'm going to do it. She hasn't said, I'm not sure if I'm going to do it. And she hasn't said, I am going to do it. So till we hear from her, I don't think we can really comment on the likelihood of it. And it's, again, the, the failed marketing man just throwing whatever he can against the wall and seeing what sticks. Well, it is a very bizarre process, and it's the classic example of the Pyrrhic victory. So if Berejiklian does end up running in the seat of Warringah and wins that seat, well, everything else is going to be lost. So it seems to me to be a very bizarre process. But in this process of getting or trying to get Berejiklian to run in the seat, They've gone through the whole process of trashing the reputation of the New South Wales ICAC and Scott Morrison has been talking quite bitterly about the ICAC, referring to it as a kangaroo court and Gladys Berejiklian not being fairly treated, that she was forced to resign. And all of this is totally untrue. And here's what Labor's Chris Bowen had to say about this at the National Press Club this week. Firstly, the Prime Minister's attack on the ICAC on the floor of the Parliament. I've seen few more disgusting displays on the floor of the parliament than that. The ICAC is not a smorgasbord in which you can pick off the findings you like and reject the findings you don't like. The ICAC is a statutorily independent body which should be respected, not undermined by the most senior politician in the country. Respected and protected by politicians, not undermined when they don't happen to like the fact that one of their own has been brought into question. I welcome the fact that former members of the Labor Party who've been corrupt have been dealt with with ICACs. If you're corrupt, you betray the Australian people and you betray your party and the people who put you into parliament. You deserve to be dealt with and you deserve to be jailed if appropriate. And we welcome ICAC looking at people in the Labor Party. We don't deflect. We don't criticise the ICAC for doing so. We support their work and defend them and protect them. It is absolutely outrageous that the Prime Minister of the day has undermined the ICAC and therefore not just undermined their work on Gladys Berejiklian, but undermined every single inquiry and investigation and finding that the ICAC has brought down. That's what the Prime Minister has effectively done. Undermine the ICAC as a whole and all the, all the state and territory based similar bodies, frankly, because they're all independently statutory based. When you attack the New South Wales ICAC, you're therefore, uh, by implication, attacking all of them. And for the Prime Minister to do that because one of his own has been attacked was not befitting the office of Prime Minister. That's the first point. Secondly, I mean, I invite you to reflect on what would be said by you and by the Liberal Party if a Labor Premier under investigation by ICAC, who had had to resign, was contemplating a move to the Federal Parliament. I do not believe that would get a leave pass or a free pass from you, it shouldn't, or from the government, the Liberal and National Party. It won't get a leave pass from us. Now, if they want to run Gladys Berejiklian for, for Warringah, that's a matter for her and for them. If they expect to leave pass for a Premier who's been under investigation by the ICAC, uh, they won't be getting one. I doubt from the people of Warringah or from the body politic. And the final point is this. It again goes to the Prime Minister's fundamental dishonesty. He defended Gladys Berejiklian by saying there'd been no finding against her. There have been no findings at all from that inquiry. They haven't released their findings yet. If he claims to know what the ICAC will find, I'm sure the ICAC will be interested to hear that he knows. <laughs> if Otherwise, he's lying. Trashing a legally constituted authority in New South Wales, which was created to stamp out corruption, 
this just seems to be political lunacy at the next level. To be taking on this kind of approach, it's very Trumpian, it's the drain the swamp type of mentality where nothing really matters anymore as long as you win. And it's just very hard for me to see what the political strategy here is. And it's also a case where it's becoming more and more apparent that Morrison just doesn't seem to have any worthwhile political skills. And to me, it's also seems to be quite apparent that he just had a very, very lucky break during the 2019 election campaign. And you only get that kind of political luck once in your political career. If you're good, if you're competent, and if you're focused, luck will go your way more often. Napoleon said something about God is on the side of the biggest artillery. Every now and then, you'll get a chance or a con artist, a scammer, get lucky. And I think you're right. This only happens once. Kerry Packer said you only get one Alan Bond. (laughs) And I think Scott Morrison's debased march into the prime ministership was Australia's Alan Bond or reverse Alan Bond moment because, of course, Alan Bond did very well for Kerry Packer. But, yeah, I think you only get one go. And, again, we saw it with Trump. He only got the one term uh, despite his claims. Netanyahu finally got turfed out in Israel, uh, another far-right-wing loony who shouldn't have been anywhere near the office. But it's not looking good for him, and there's, there's talk that he's not going to make it, that someone's going to roll him. I'm not saying that that's guaranteed. I'm just saying that's what I'm hearing and seeing. There's still a possibility that someone will be able to talk two-thirds of the Liberal membership into rolling Morrison. I think that's highly unlikely before the election, but I don't think it's impossible in the hope that they can pull another rabbit out of the hat and win with a new candidate. Although who that is, Josh Frydenberg has to focus way too much on his seat in Kuyong, I think. Dutton is loathed outside of the seat of Dixon. I, I can't see it happening, is, is what I'm saying. And, and so, interestingly enough, he'll be the first Prime Minister to serve a full term since 2007. You're listening to New Politics. You can subscribe to us on Apple or Google Podcasts, listen through SoundCloud, Spotify and Amazon Audible, or find us at newpolitics.com.au. And you can now follow us at Patreon. Up next... We talk to Zoe Daniel, the independent candidate for the seat of Goldstein in Melbourne, and find out what's happening in the Voices of Goldstein campaign. There's been a developing desire within the electorate to have more independent MPs in Parliament, and that's easier said than done, but there does seem to be a breakdown in the current two-party political system, and it's not resulting in important issues within the community being addressed, and climate change is a very good example of this, and people are looking for other solutions. Personally, I think it is better to have more independent MPs in Parliament, depending on who they are, of course. But David, do you think that having more independent MPs is the answer to some of Australia's political problems? Again, it depends on who it is. It's not really about independence or party. It's about the quality of candidate. And the Liberal Party's really dropped the ball 
I'm always happy to see, and I've said this many times on this podcast, competent, passionate, industrious, good people, honest people working their best. And whether they're Liberal, Labor, Green, National, One Nation, UAP, and in fact, a lot of our better senators came out of the UAP and and left, interestingly enough, and went on to become very good independents. Again, I didn't agree with them all the time, sometimes never, but you could see that they were working hard, they were being honest, trying to be across everything you need to be across as they were all senators, I think, and they took the job very seriously. I think if it's going to be a an independent-driven government, it's because people have seen this. We've said before, it's not a national election, it's 151 little elections. If you're up against a Zali Stegel or a Zoe Daniel or any of the smart, competent, professional women who have said enough is enough, you better bring your best game because anything less than that is a guaranteed lose and your best game could be a loss anyway. There is a groundswell of support for independent MPs. It's mainly happening in the states of New South Wales and Victoria. And this week, we decided to have a look at what's happening in the Melbourne seat of Goldstein and had a chat to the independent candidate, Zoe Daniel. Welcome to the New Policies Podcast. Thanks for having me. Now, you've been working as a journalist and a foreign correspondent for some time. You're also the chief of the ABC's US Bureau in Washington for four years up until the end of 2019. Now, you've been the one that's been asking all the questions of people in politics, but now you're on the other side of the microphone for at least the next six months up until the next election. Now, there's always a motivation for people moving into politics. So what are your motivations for running in the seat of Goldstein? Look, I think we've got some critical issues that have to be dealt with and they're just not being. I feel like in the party political system, we're quite stuck A lot of the policy conversation is politically oriented, as in how it's going to play with the electorate rather than how it's going to actually affect people, how it's going to improve communities, solve problems and make life better. And the Voices of Goldstein movement, which is a grassroots community organisation, came to me and asked me if I'd be interested in running. Initially, I was a bit reticent as someone who, as you said, has been an observer for a long time and has made a whole career out of being an objective observer. But the main pillars of the movement really do align with a lot of my own concerns, particularly around lack of progress on smart climate policy, integrity, honesty and accountability in politics, transparent economic management and also genuine safety and equality for women. So after consulting with my family around the fact that it would have a big impact on us and my time and me being home and having to travel a lot. My kids have been very supportive of this because they're really concerned about these issues too, especially climate and equality. The seat of Goldstein has always been held by the Liberal Party and it's a relatively affluent area within Melbourne, but you've talked about some of those issues that you would like to campaign on, but are these issues also relevant to the people in the seat of Goldstein and what are some of the other issues that you might be campaigning on and how would these be different to what the current member for Goldstein is offering to the public? Well, the evidence is from polling and also general 
canvassing in the neighbourhoods of Goldstein is that people are really concerned about these issues. And certainly the conversations that I've had with people, particularly since we launched a week and a half or so ago, have indicated that accountability is really an overarching issue. People are very concerned about behaviour among our politicians, around lack of integrity, lack of transparency, uh, and they really want an increase in accountability. But that also goes to policy settings as well, particularly on something like climate. I think there's an increasing recognition, especially in a, an affluent seat like Goldstein, as you said, that this is uh, firstly a moral issue, but now increasingly an economic issue that we can no longer afford to wait for smart climate policy. And there's also frustration around lack of delivery on other things. For example, an integrity commission that this government promised in 2018 and has not delivered federally, and also inaction uh, and lack of sincerity on action when it comes to the equality and safety of women. And I think in regard to the incumbent member, the, the issue is that so-called moderate liberals, no matter what they say, uh, you need to watch what they do. And the incumbent has voted 100% of the time with the National Party. So that is a lack of representation for the people of Goldstein who are far more moderate. And for example, on climate, 75 to 80% of the electorate say that they do want more action. Yet here we are beholden to what the National Party wants, which is not much progress at all. Now, I think we can all agree that climate change has been a highly toxic issue and highly politicised issue over the past 12 to 13 years. I think that's probably the biggest understatement that I'll ever make. But you mentioned before that it has been weaponised primarily because it was defined as a moral issue. Former, And if we look back at history, former Prime Minister Kevin Rudd, he suggested that it was the greatest moral challenge of our time back in 2007. But do you feel that we've taken on the wrong approach here and we might have had more success with climate change action if it had been defined as the greatest economic challenge of our time rather than a moral issue? Oh, yeah. And I think, you know, you could argue that a lot of issues have been weaponised out of a, a kind of a politics of fear, if you like, uh, not only in Australia, but the world over. And in the case of climate policy, it's been around fear of change. But the issue that we now face is the change is happening anyway. So we either get on board, embrace it and try to get in front of it via innovation, job creation, embracing new industries, creating policy certainty uh, and therefore a framework for investment for big investors who do want to step in or we see that money go to countries that do create that policy certainty and then we, we play catch up. You know, there are many things that we could uh, judge in hindsight around the, the weaponisation of climate policy but I actually think it goes deeper than that. I think we're now in a situation where because we have a, a two-party system where everything revolves around getting re-elected rather than focusing on what you actually do during the period that you're in office, so that creates a lot of dysfunction. And people have seen that on the floor of parliament where it's sort of a, a mudslinging uh, match rather than actually drilling down to what the substantive issues are and trying to create some progress. And I think, you know, that's a big motivation for someone like me who, you know, there's no magic wand of course, but to get in, uh, be part of the sensible centre on, on the crossbench to try and actually push forward some progress on some of these issues would be um, a great position to be in. And I think it's something that's needed. 
So you did mention that integrity is an issue that you'd like to strongly campaign on. So at the moment, there is a bill from the government for the creation of a federal commission against corruption, and that's been criticised for not being powerful enough. And the Labor Party has promised a far more powerful commission against corruption, but we don't know what that will be like because we haven't actually seen their proposal yet. The proposal to create this federal ICAC, it was you mentioned this before, it was first announced over three years ago, and the discussions about any sort of ICAC, it was actually first discussed during the 2016 federal election campaign. So that's over five years ago, that's almost two parliamentary terms, and it's barely moved an inch during this time. So it's obvious that there are certain people that don't want this to happen with any great urgency, but... Why do you think we need a federal ICAC and what would you like to see this body do? Well, I think we need proper oversight. And I think that this is actually the, the prevailing view of many people in not only Goldstein, but electorates around Australia who want better oversight and transparency around what our politicians are doing. And in my mind, actually, it potentially goes further than a federal ICAC, if you like, or Corruption Commission. It goes to an Integrity Commission that also encompasses things like truth in political advertising and more transparency around large political donations and how those donations are influencing and controlling the kind of policy settings that we have. But in terms of the Federal Anti-Corruption Commission, the legislation that the government has finally put on the table is very, very narrowly framed, far too narrowly. Um, Experts in the majority have said that it would make the situation potentially worse, not better, that it could actually foster corruption rather than stamping it out. Um, it, it sets a very high benchmark for cases to be referred to the kind of commission that the government is proposing. So, you know, I think if you're going to have a national corruption commission or integrity commission, it has to be broadly focused, it has to be well resourced, and it has to have teeth uh, to put something in. Uh, just for the sake of putting something in so that you can say, well, I've ticked that box, is not good enough, uh, and maybe worse than doing nothing at all. So what, what the government is putting forward is inadequate. It's not just me that's saying that. That's, that's been the general uh, view of what they've put up. And at the last minute, you know, they said in 2018 that they would do this, and they finally put something on the table just before an election. And unfortunately, I think that's reflected in many of the government's actions, going to COP26, uh, getting a, a target for 2050 just in time, uh, implementing a few of the recommendations of the Jenkins report on sexual harassment in the workplace after complaints were made about behaviour in Parliament House. So always being dragged or being reactive uh, rather than proactive on any of these issues. And that's part of the deep-seated problem that we have. Now, you also referred to the two-party political system before. It's called the two-party system because that's essentially what the system caters for, the coalition and the Labor Party. And it is extremely difficult for independent MPs to get elected, and that's for a wide range of reasons. It's onerous, it's difficult personally and financially. It takes up a lot of resources, and these are usually resources that are readily available for the major parties. And then 
On top of all this, there's all the political attacks. And you know this as well as anyone else. The mainstream parties, well, they're not just going to roll over and give up these seats so easily. They've already started their attacks on certain independent candidates, and especially those associated with the voices of campaigns. And there's that accusation that you're all just Trojan horses for the Greens or for the Labor Party or for someone else. So as an independent candidate, how can some of these factors be addressed during the campaign? Well, firstly, to say that I'm no Trojan horse and nor am I a puppet for anyone. I'm a swinging voter. So I voted for the Liberal Party. I voted for the Labor Party. Uh, I vote depending on the leadership team and and the policies of the day and who I think can deliver uh, on the needs at hand at the time. I'm not ideological. I'm the person who goes often into the voting booth and doesn't know who to vote for because I I don't feel that either of the major parties represent me. So in many ways, I see myself as the perfect crossbencher because I'm someone who's going to analyse each policy on its merits and consider what the impact will be on the people of Goldstein and also match that with the conversations that I've had with people in the electorate. The, The strength of the community independent movement, and no matter what anyone says, it's been instigated by people in the electorates who are members of the community from the grassroots. So no one's developing this from the top down. These movements have sprung up on their own. And the first of them was in Indi when Cathy McGowan was elected. Um, So the whole strength of the movement is to talk to people, engage with people in the community in a genuine way, and then try to take their genuine views uh, as actual people into the parliament to influence policy uh, for the better of of the community. So that's the way that we'll be approaching it. Yes, it, it will be difficult. It's not as easy to run as an independent. You don't have policies to rip and read. You don't have, you know, a bank account that you can tap. You don't have a a system in which to place your campaign and and people to staff it. We're building all of that from from zero and it's a very short runway, but there's huge support behind this and that's very uplifting, not only from the perspective perspective of the campaign itself, but also from just a a general democratic perspective to see people so engaged in this and, and so positive about it. So I did bring up some of those issues for independent candidates. Now, I'm not trying to dissuade you or anything like that, but I'm just pointing out that it is difficult, but it is not impossible. That's the critical factor. There's actually currently three independent MPs in the lower house, and it seems that once they get there, they're actually in office for some time. And and it does seem to be that there's a mood generally within the electorate for more independent MPs, but just having a mood for change or having more independent MPs is not enough. There needs to be independent candidates available for the electorate to vote for and and good quality independent candidates as well. But you referred to some of this before, but do you get a sense within the electorate that people do want something different to the politics as usual approach? Oh, absolutely. I've been so um, ecstatic with the reaction that we've had. We put out a campaign video and it had several hundred thousand views within the first few days. My inboxes on social media and my emails have been completely overflowing. My phone has not stopped ringing. People are stopping me in the street. People are stopping at the front gate. I've been out doing walks, talking to people in the electorate about policies, but I've also been at social events over the last couple of weeks where people have been so excited and I would say relieved 
actually, to see not only me step up, but independence in other electorates around the country to, to provide an actual realistic, uh, sensible alternative to, to what's available. And particularly for people in an electorate like Goldstein, which is a blue ribbon Liberal seat, there's a sense of being taken for granted that no matter which way you vote, you'll end up with the status quo. So I think what we're providing is a point of difference to say, well, you, you don't actually have to vote uh, Liberal. And if you vote Labor normally, that's potentially a wasted vote in an electorate like this. So have a think about this other option, which is me, uh, that sits in, in the centre and has potential to make a difference from the crossbench. And, you know, anecdotally, we're getting an incredibly positive response and people so far are really embracing that. And if you took a walk around Goldstein and I ran around the corner the day after we launched last weekend and there was a, a sign on someone's fence for our campaign and they're starting to spring up as people seek to get involved and, and really engage with this process. So just looking at the profession of journalism, and you've been a journalist for some time, there's been a number of journalists who have made that move into politics, and there actually has been quite a lot of success there. There's Maxine McHugh, Prue Goward, Sarah Henderson, Bob Carr, Peter Andron, Malcolm Turnbull, Tony Abbott, Jodie McKay, I could go on, but there actually have been six prime ministers who have worked as journalists before they entered parliament, so it does happen, and quite frequently, actually. But there's also that transition involved from, uh, I've referred to this before, being the one who usually asks the questions and reports on the events of politics, and then that's being swapped around where the focus of attention is now on you, and you're the one that's being asked all the questions, and you have to provide an answer. But that understanding of how the media narrative operates, the way that information is synthesised and presented to the public or misrepresented to the public through the media, what kind of advantage do you think this might give you during an election campaign? Well, look, obviously, uh, as a broadcast journalist for almost three decades, much of my strength is in communication, but that doesn't only involve talking. A lot of that's about listening. And the other thing that it's about is synthesising really complex information, often in very high-pressure situations. I've made a career working all around the world, often talking to people who have very different views about things uh, than mine, and I've learned a lot from those people. So one of the things that I've enjoyed most about journalism actually is learning to look at things through all sides of the prism, not assuming that the way that I think about things is the way that other people do. Taking on bits and pieces of the things that people tell me and perhaps integrating them into my own opinions or even if I don't integrate them, considering the fact that things affect other people differently to the way that they affect me. I've been in so many situations around the world that I think are, are relevant and provide a really good underpinning for political life in that I've seen climate change up close in the form of superstorms and floods and hurricanes and typhoons and bushfires and I've been to the Arctic and I've seen the melting permafrost. I've been in conflict situations. I've been in refugee camps. I've covered all sorts of disasters. I've covered Wall Street. I've been in the Oval Office. I've been a rural journalist in Australia. I've been a business journalist interviewing chief executives. All of those experiences form who I am and that then comes into the way that perhaps I look at policy, the way that I interact with people, be they constituents or other 
politicians. Uh, and also uh, it gives me a, an appetite for collaboration. So I think, you know, everyone is the, the sum of their parts, if you like, in terms of their experiences. It just so happens that my experiences are very broad. And I think that does provide an advantage. So you were the chief of the ABC's US Bureau for four years. I mentioned that right at the beginning, but that was also during Donald Trump's presidency, which just happened to be one of the most turbulent times in American politics. But what were some of your impressions during that time? And are there any similarities with what you might be seeing in Australian politics at the moment? Look, I spent four years covering Donald Trump and much of that time I spent speaking to Donald Trump supporters trying to understand why they were supporting him. And the position that I came to in many ways was that I was observing the disintegration of one of the world's greatest democracies, but also that part of the reason that people were supporting Donald Trump and continue to do so was because of a loss of hope because of a sense of disconnection from those who were leading them, because of a sense of not being listened to, not being heard, a sense of being controlled by a group of elites in Washington who didn't understand their circumstances. But above all, a sense, particularly in the inland states that have been affected by changes to world trade, migration and and changes to technology, that their children's lives would be worse than theirs that their prosperity was eroding so that they were very much looking for someone and they they thought they found that person in in donald trump some of them thought they found it previously in barack obama um they're sort of casting around for someone who could provide some hope the thing is though that there's some really destructive aspects to that particularly um, the fact that people when they feel disconnected they tend to flee to the margins so then you see the rise of conspiracy theories that that lack of trust that real trust gap and that's really concerning to me and I do see that seeping into Australian society as well and that's also part of my motivation for stepping into this because you know I think trust is really central to who our leaders should be. And I think there's been a real loss of trust, not only in the US, but also in Australia in politics in recent history. That was Zoe Daniel, and she is the independent candidate for the seat of Goldstein at the next federal election. And she's being supported through the Voices of Movement all around Australia. You can find further details about her campaign at zoedaniel.com and also at voicesofgoldstein.org.au. That's it for this new politics podcast. Thanks for listening in. If you'd like to support our style of journalism and commentary, please make a donation at our website at newpolitics.com.au. We don't beg, plead, beseech, or gaslight you about journalism coming to an end. We just keep it very, very simple. If you like what we do, please send some support our way. It helps keep our commitment to independent journalism ticking along. I'm Eddie Djokovic. Thanks for listening in, and it's goodbye to our listeners. I'm David Lewis. We'll see you next time. <laughs>